You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning, y'all. My name is Eric Howard. Um, I've been coming to Hope since I was about yay high. Um, Please stand for today's reading. Our passage today is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Eric. You guys may be seated. Mark stole what I was going to have you guys turn to someone and say, we're better together. So just turn and say, we're really good together to someone around you. You stole it. Okay, you didn't steal it, but we'll talk. <laughs> Oh gosh, that just made me nervous. Okay. Well, anyways, we are so happy that you guys are here this morning and you guys have joined us for part two as we wrap up this series, Better Together, where we look at this idea that we become who God has created us to be when we belong to a community that he has created us for. And every single time this series comes about, we try to do it a couple times in the year. Uh, Mark and I sit down for a couple of minutes or a couple of hours, depending on how much we have to say. And we just take that time to step back and assess where we are at as a faith family, as a church, church culture. Where are we strong in? Where do we need to grow in? And how can we move deeper in unity as a community for the glory of God? And for these two weeks, we really felt impressed with this thought or or more of a reality that our faith is one that is full of formed people, but that the most formed people, the most whole and the most complete, the most sanctified, whatever word you want to use, are the ones who exist in and for others. The most formed people throughout church history, if we look at the people who we have called saints, people whose faiths we want to emulate, we see that they were not just people who existed in a rich Christian community, but that their lives were also lived for something and someone bigger than themselves. It was a faith that was bigger than just being sanctified and becoming a better person or a more mature believer, but it was one that was filled with a tense balance of a life lived for others while also working on their own inward formation. And all of their lives were marked by some sort of suffering and sacrificial love for others while they strive to live deeply in kingdom-minded, Christ-centered community. This is a reality for us this morning that I want us to talk about and kind of wrap up our discussion on uh, as we talked about 
about it last week, and I encourage you to watch that message if, if you haven't, as uh, Pastor Mark really laid a fundamental groundwork for this conversation to happen today that we're going to have. But what we see throughout all of Scripture and all of church history is that we are a people who are most whole and who are fulfilling the kingdom purposes best when we are together. Hence, we're better together or really good together. Paul in 1 Corinthians and Romans, he talks about this idea multiple different ways. New Testament talks about this in multiple different ways. But 1 Corinthians and the book of Romans talks about individual parts of a larger body. Galatians and Ephesians talk about individual members, brothers and sisters of a larger family. 1 Peter talks about individual citizens of a greater kingdom. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about and says things like, no greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for a brother. Or even... Uh, the two commandments that are greatest, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. What we will find if we did a full word search study on the word community, unity, and love for others, we would find hundreds of passages that point to this fact that we, when existing in and for community, will be most fully formed in the image of Christ and be moving that mission and purpose into the world around us. And this is what Philippians 2 is all about here. We could have talked about a lot of different things, but I think here we arguably have one of the strongest pleas from Paul for building a deep, real, and eternal community for us. And I felt like, and I believe that we need to talk about this passage today and take time to meditate on this passage, commit it to our memory if we have the ability to do so, or just read these words over and over again throughout the week and our life. Because I think Philippians 2 and Passages like it speak to and directly against the culture that we are surrounded with and influenced by. It's important for us as we set up this conversation this morning that we understand the culture that we live in because we would be ignorant to the reality that culture influences our faith. Wherever you go, you see the surrounding culture impacts how a faith people and believers live to some degree, how they think, how they think, what they think about habitual patterns and lifestyles. A culture influences our faith to some degree. It's why when you go to countries that are driven by a culture of honor and shame, we don't preach the gospel the same way we would here in Anderson, South Carolina, but we do say that sin brought shame into our life and has brought us out of a place of honor at a seat with the table of God. But Jesus comes to restore that seat at the table for us. And we have been bestowed honor and glory in and through Christ. Or if you go to a country that's heavily invested in witchcraft and demonic forces, we don't preach the same gospel we preach here, but we would say darkness came in because of sin that man brought in. But Jesus has come to be a light and to empower us and enable us to cast out darkness and demons and give us authority over them in Jesus' name upon belief in him and his death and resurrection. It's really important for us to understand the culture that we are living in. And men much smarter, men and women much smarter than me, have described our culture that we live in today here in America in the buckle of the Bible belt as one that is driven by selfism. Everyone say selfism. Selfism, it's an idea that I don't need others as they are but only for what they can do for me. I don't need others as they are, but only for what they can do for me. Kenneth Leach, a social Christian common, uh, commentary, uh, he, he, gives, uh, uh, he describes it as consumerism driven by capitalistic cultures and tendencies. Tim Keller oftentimes called it an individualistic culture driven by the deification of the self, that we have elevated our own thoughts, our own values, our own agendas, our own opinions above other people at the expense of other people. But at all of these isms, 
are trying to say is that we have become a culture that is driven by self rather than others. We're a culture that is focused more on ourselves and what people can give to us rather than on others and what we can give and provide for them. And what this has resulted in, in the church of America today, is a group of believers who have this privatized faith, low commitment levels, and a cheap kind of love. Selfism kind of looks like this in the church. It looks like a person who goes to a church as long as they want, so long as it gives them what it wants and says what they want to hear themselves. Selfism in the church looks like people going to a church for their programs rather than the people that they can build deep relationships with. Selfism looks like expecting all of the hard work of discipleship and growing in love and learning more about the character and nature of God and carrying out the mandate and mission of Jesus to be done by people who are getting paid rather than by doing it themselves. Selfism is church hurt that people experience because they were used as a warm body by a pastor for his own or her own agendas rather than a person to disciple. Selfism is wanting the rom-com version of the Christian faith rather than the documentary real version of the faith. And Eugene Peterson breaks down the destructive nature of selfism in the church. I think it's important for us to give gravity to the words that Paul is speaking here to the church of Philippi and to give gravity to what we should be learning about today from this text. Uh, Peterson says this, he says, Selfism reduces life to my appetites and needs and preferences. Selfism results in expulsion from the garden. But once out there on our own, east of Eden, we find that we can't quite make it without a little help. So we join forces with a few others out of necessity. Meanwhile, fiercely insisting on our independence and excluding all who don't suit our preferences. We construct, he says, religious clubs instead of entering resurrection communities. And I think that this is what, I believe that this is what is suffocating the church in America. Why we're seeing the Christian church hemorrhaging at its side, losing believers left and right. Not because of any supposed persecution or non-Christians or, or politician or anything like that, but because we ourselves in the faith have reduced it to a self-help club where we can join when we want, if it's what we want, while holding a people at an arm's length so they don't, don't disrupt our normal patterns and way and want of life. And because of this, we are a people who are missing out on the deep, involved, integrated, life-giving kind of unity that Paul is calling for and that Christ hung on a cross for. Because we're settling for something less than the bigger purpose that brings us outside of ourself, of the kingdom of God that each of us have been invited, called, and commanded into. Now the nice thing about all of this is that this is not just reserved for us. This is not just a problem that's unique to us here in America, here in Anderson, here at Hope Fellowship. But in every generation, believers have struggled with something like this in some form. In the church of Philippi, they were struggling with this in some way, shape, or form, which is why 
Paul is writing to them and giving them this reminder of their faith and what is supposed to be natural fruits of their belief and experiencing of the presence of God. He's reminding them of what it takes to actually build a deep and unified community of people rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. He's giving them an example of what that kind of humility looks like. And then he's casting a vision for a greater purpose than just the individual self and trying to bring these people, and my hope is bring bring us today outside of ourselves and into the bigger, amazing, and beautiful purposes of the kingdom of God that Jesus has risen for. So Paul starts in this way. He says in Philippians 2 verse 1, so if there is any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by having the same mind, being of, uh, being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. He is reminding them that if they are people who claim to have experienced encouragement from the cross of Christ, if they are claiming to be people who have the Holy Spirit within them, if they're claiming to people who understand his love through an experiential relationship with him, if they are people who have claimed and who are claiming, if we are people who are claiming to have felt and feel his tender, loving kindness, mercy, and grace, then we need and we will have bonded agreement, complete unity, and one overarching love for one another. Simply put, what he's saying is, if you claim to be a believer, complete my joy by acting like a believer. It's a reminder for us to remember the love of Christ that we claim to have experienced and remember that that love is not supposed to be reserved or hoarded for ourselves, but that love is supposed to usher us outside of ourselves and move us into a life that is drastically and radically for others. Think of 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. It is a reminder to remember the love and remember what the natural fruits are of that love of those who have experienced it. And what he's doing here is he's kind of taking away every possible excuse we could have for avoiding loving others, for avoiding the kind of unity that takes work, and for avoiding the kind of community that some of us crave and others of us are terrified of. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't mean if this is number one on your priority list or last on your priority list. If you are a believer, then this is what you will naturally do. Because this kind of love for others, this kind of unity, is not an optional aspect of our faith. It is a foundational piece of our faith. Of the bride of Christ, of our individual formation, of of our, our witness in the world. And if we claim to be a people who have experienced this, but we fail to show the same sacrificial love... To others, the same suffering kind of love to others, the kind of hard, laborious, taxing love to others, then all it is, all that our spirituality and our supposed faith is going to do is distort the kingdom of God and its ways and God's will, while also destroying the validity of our witness to the world. To love and be in unity with one another is not optional. This is a call from Paul to start, to remind these people in Philippi, to remind us today that we are to love and be unified with the people that we are in close proximity with. 
to the people that are sitting in this room today, whether you know them or not, to the people who we call brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be deeply and heavily unified with. It's not a call just to love each other, or it's not a call that can just be fulfilled and satisfied with a Sunday morning conversation. It's not a love and a sacrificial giving of ourselves that can be fulfilled with just writing a check and sending it off to some faraway place where we don't ever have to engage with those people. It is an expensive, taxing, sacrificial love that urges and pushes and draws us into the messiness, uncomfortability, and inconvenience of other people's lives. Mother Teresa, in talking about community and love, had this to say about it. She said, it is easy to love those who are far away. It is not always easy to love those who live right next to us. It's easier to offer a dish of rice to meet the hunger of a needy person than it is to comfort the loneliness and the anguish of someone in our own home who does not feel loved. The world's love and commitment is a cheap one because it is centered around what is convenient, comfortable, and within their control. It's one that only lives for the honeymoon phase of relationships and then tosses it to the side and pursues the next thing for themselves. If we're going to be different than this culture, if we're going to be different than the world, if we're actually going to have a faith that witnesses and preaches the gospel simply by just how we're living, if we're going to have a faith that preaches the gospel with what we are saying and what we are thinking, then our commitment is one that must be unconditional. Our love has to be one that is driven by the Spirit, and our unity has to be completely and totally centered around Christ. And so Paul, in these first two verses, is just laying down, remember these things that you claim to have experienced, and remember that the natural response of those things is this. And then he gives them a very practical instruction. He says, if you want to have this kind of unity with the people sitting next to you or four pews back or on the flow downs, if you want to have this kind of unity, it requires one very simple, in my opinion, very easy thing, and that is humility. Look what he says, Philippians 2, 3 through 5. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, everyone say humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. He's saying all that it's going to take to make this kind of love and unity and community to work is a people who are okay with being inconvenienced and getting a call at 8 p.m. at night to go move a grand piano, even though they had just washed the dishes, they had just gotten the kids down and they're Tushikis was two inches away from the sofa with a remote in their hand and they were just looking forward to just doing nothing. It's going to take a people who are willing to get uncomfortable and step in vulnerably, risking something with consequence into someone's life, being uncomfortable, like helping put kids down. Uh, the hookers put this to the test for me on Friday. They texted me, said they need help with bedtimes. And I was like, if I was not writing this sermon right now, I would probably come up with an excuse. But I'm writing this and I'm preaching it, so I need to practice what I'm preaching. The hookers are also a family, not an occupation. So just, I just... <laughs> They're a wonderful family, and anyway, so yes, they are a family, and um, it is, well, yes, thank you, Mark, it is an occupation, <laughs> just not theirs, okay, I mean, it's going to take us being willing to surrender all control 
and all need of control for the sake of the person sitting in this room and for the sake of the world who has yet to hear Jesus. It is this idea of humility that is essential for any community to thrive and actually flourish. Uh, Cranfield, he has a great commentator on the book of Philippians. He, he says this about unity and humility. He says, such unity will only come when Christians are humble and bold enough to lay hold on the unity already given in Christ and to take it more seriously than their own self-importance. And to make of those deep differences of doctrine which originate in our imperfect understanding of the gospel and which we dare not belittle, not an excuse for letting go of one another or staying apart, but rather an incentive for a more earnest seeking in fellowship together to hear and obey the voice of Christ. It will only come in the midst of all of our deep differences of doctrine and all those secondary and tertiary issues, in the midst of all of the differences that we have of the people in this room who voted for different people or who prioritize different things outside of God, for all of those differences that we have together, for the interests that we don't share, for the, the lives that we think are, are, are different, and all these different aspects that we have with one another, it should not make us leave one another, but rather it should be an incentive for a more earnest seeking in fellowship together to hear and obey the voice of Christ. In order to have a community that I believe each of us in some way are longing for in the depth of our being, it is going to take each one of us to not be focused on ourselves, our agendas, our selfish motives and desires, but to be individually people who are completely and totally fixated on Christ so that we as a people can be unified together. This is the opposite of selfism that says use people for what they can do for you, not for just who they are. It, it, but it's, it's, while it's the opposite of selfism, that's a good thing because this is how kingdom community is built and cultivated and flourishing. When it's filled with the people who are thinking of others and counting others as more significant than themselves. When it's filled with the people who have surrendered everything to God. I think of someone like Mary in Luke 1, 28. She finds out that she's having a baby. She hasn't even done the thing you need to do in order to have this baby. And she could have responded in any way, shape, or form to God. And I think each of us would have gone, yeah, that's probably legitimate. She could have gotten angry going, why in the world did you choose me? She could have made a horrific decision that she would have regretted. She could have done something here that would have changed the trajectory of the future. But instead of responding in anger or fear or anxiety out of all of these things, she responds with this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is a picture of pure humility, of pure surrender. As she's holding nothing as her own, her own, her future is not her own. Her time is not her own. Her own body is not her own. And she is in complete recognition of that, which is what enables her to respond in such a way that I think is so countral to how I would have responded to information like that. It's not filled with an anxiety. She doesn't have anxiety, at least in this moment. She doesn't have anger in this moment. She doesn't feel inconvenienced in this moment. She just feels complete and total, whatever you need me to do, God. Not my will, but your will be done. I think this is an important aspect of humility for us to grasp, this idea of surrender. Because for us, our, our culture truly does prioritize comfort, convenience, and 
control, and control, I think, being the big one. In his book, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, in the whole book, he's imagining a conversation between Uncle Screwtape and then his nephew, Wormtail, who both are demons and both are trying to basically disrupt God's kingdom and keep people from knowing God and loving God and knowing others and loving others. And in it, he imagines a conversation between these two demons as they discuss how to make sure that they will stay divided and unable to really do anything. And this is what the uncle says to Wormtail. He says, you will, is it Wormtail? I'm, anyways. That's not important. But he says, you will have noticed that nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find attractive time, which he reckoned on having at his own disposal, disposal, unexpectedly taken from him. It is the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening, the cry of a baby when he was just settling into a book or a chore or a phone call from a known chatty Kathy when he was just about to sit down at the table for dinner. That throws him out of gear. They anger him because he regards time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Could it be that unity and community is really difficult for us, that we feel inconvenienced at an interruption in our life, anxious over situations that we have going on, or uncomfortable at these truths because all that they are revealing is the pride of control that we thought we had in our life. We are to be humble. And if you really want a good practice, let me recommend a great practice for you. If you want to practice to test how humble you actually are, how much you've actually surrendered, then just have a kid. I promise you, well, do the things you need to do before having a kid, but have a kid. Because very quickly, your whole life stops being your own, and in one humbling or humiliating, whichever word makes you feel more comfortable, in one humbling and humiliating moment, it reveals every single area that you have been holding onto as your own, as the lawful possessor. The first couple of months of, of having Tatum was extremely guilt-ridden because this whole time, here I have this beautiful, uh, I almost said creature, beautiful daughter. She's kind of a creature right now. She's crawling around a lot. She likes to hang out with the dogs. Um, this beautiful daughter that we prayed for and that we were expectantly waiting for and that we told so many people in excitement about. And yet in the moments of those first couple of months and moments still now, I'm upset or angry or wishfully thinking that I could just go watch a movie or go play pickup or just sit down. I really miss sitting lately. And I'm not even going to talk about sleep. It would make me too mad up here. But anyways, it's this beautiful child who has no idea what's going on. And she's just crying because that's how she communicates. And I'd be crying too, I guess, if I just came out of something and was like, oh my gosh, there's so many lights and all this stuff. And yet here I am angry that she's interrupting my nightly nothing box where I just kind of check out or a book that I'm reading or the sleep that I'm trying to unsuccessfully get. This child is relying on me for literal life. More so Cassie, 80 to 20, uh, more so Cassie for life, but also me for life at times. 
And yet I feel inconvenienced because the control I thought I had is being shattered by this screaming sinner. I felt so guilty in these first couple of months and I still feel that guilt at times because this is what we had prayed for. And yet for some reason, the feelings that I was having was not normal. Friends, it's because we think we have control. We count the 24 hours in our day as lawful possessors and we give God a portion of that and we'll give others a portion of that. But the reality is that that should be turned in on his head. God is the lawful possessor of every moment in our day and he gives us gifts of grace that we make idols and put in his place like ourselves instead of him. Having a kid is very similar to being in community because it's inconvenient. They always interrupt at inconvenient times. It's uncomfortable as you change the most disgusting cottage cheese poopy diapers. Community, I guess you would maybe have to do that for people at some times too. It, they're uncontrollable because people and children are not machines we can program to do what we want them to do. And what having a kid and, and what actually immersing yourself in community forces you to do is make a decision of are you going to give up this facade of control that you have been trying to maintain in your life and surrender? Or are you going to dig your heels in even deeper and try to maintain that control at, of your life at the expense of your child and at the expense of others in your life? But here, Paul is trying to transform our thinking, to try to say, no, 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 these aren't inconveniences. These are opportunities to build a deep bond with people. This isn't uncomfortable, or maybe it is a little uncomfortable, but these are moments where you show the love of Christ best. These are not moments where you can't control. These are built-in slots for you to practice surrender, and we should be thanking God that he has made it out of our control. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying here, you have to practice this if you want unity. And then what he does in Paul's grace, and then the only way that he can do is he gives us a picture of that kind of humility. But before, I I do think we need to say one quick thing. And that is that in this humility that we are to have, in this surrender that we are to have, guilt is not enough to motivate surrender. The, the guilt that I felt in those first couple of months is not enough to motivate me to get out of bed or not enough to motivate me to put down my phone, at least not in the long term. Guilt's not enough to make us for someone else rather than for ourselves. Guilt is not going to make us strive for endlessly and passionately the kingdom of God and the Christ-centered relationships that it contains. But the one thing that motivates this kind of humble, surrendering love is love. Only the experience of that unconditional, committed love will make us say, all of this is yours. We have to be a people who have experienced and who are experiencing the tangible love of God. Let me ask you a quick question. What motivated Jesus to do the things that he did? What motivated Jesus to stay up all night praying being with the Father. What motivated Jesus to, to inconvenience himself with people's lives and to heal and to speak good news to as many people as he possibly could? What motivated Jesus to go to a cross and willingly suffer on a cursed tree for our sake? It wasn't guilt. It, it wasn't selfish ambition. It wasn't conceit. It was love. It was experienced love. He knew 
out of everyone he knows best, the love that happens between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Mark preached on that last week. He, he was constantly experiencing that love. And so he was willing to do anything to continually be in that presence and that loving presence. But then it didn't just stop with him hoarding that for himself. But that love pushed him to do things that no person could ever do outside of Jesus himself. A good litmus test for you and I in the room this morning of how much we are experiencing and how much we have been changed by God's love is by asking ourselves and answering honestly, do I want more of him or something else? Do I have an actual burden to care for the people and to get to know the people in this room? Do you have a genuine desire for the people that you shop with in a store or you work alongside or you are in a family with or a friend group with? Do you have a genuine desire for them to know Jesus and that love? Because if the answer is consistently and routinely, no. I think it should create pause in us to stop and figure out why are we even here this Sunday morning? Who are we really becoming and looking more like? And what do we think being a follower of Christ is all about? Because I can tell you one thing. It is not just about the me and the self. It is about him and making him known. And there's a lot of other complexities that come with that. And there's a lot of other tensions that come with that. But ultimately, what matters is him and making him known. This is the kind of love that motivated Jesus. And it's the kind of humble love that we should have if we have experienced his love and we meditate on his love. And so what Paul does here is he gets away from the practical instructions and he just decides to just present us with this picture. He says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We look at these verses and we think of them as things that we are to imitate. And while that's true, Paul is not just putting this here to be something that we imitate. Paul is putting this here so that we would have the picture in front of us. And so that as we meditate on the grandness of this idea that the God of the universe, who is all-powerful, all-sustaining, and all-knowing, was willing to step into that which was weak, a feeble baby who had to depend on other people, who was willing to empty himself of the glory of God. If he was willing to do all of this, it should humble us to the point where we are willing to do everything for him. Jesus, just man, we could take a whole sermon series on this. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I don't want this just to be some monotonous or mundane phrase or verses that we read. We have to understand the gravity of this, that the God of the universe gave up that which was rightfully his so that we could enter into a relationship with him, so that his kingdom could be proclaimed, so that the Father would be glorified. And yet, I don't want to share the gospel with someone in public because it makes me uncomfortable. Talk about humbling. 
He was willing to do all of this out of love. If we find ourselves this morning struggling to give up control or being hesitant to even think about living a life for others and ultimately for God rather than for yourself, may I suggest meditating on these verses as a way to remind yourself and remind ourselves that we are not too important, too great, or better than anyone else to not humble ourselves in these sacrificial and suffering ways because the God of the universe did so. Whether we like it or not, friends, the kingdom community that is inconvenient and uncomfortable requires us to give up control and love others as we have been loved for the sake of others and for the sake of his kingdom. And here's the beautiful truth is that we do this because our lives in Christ are now so much more than just 85 years Our lives are so much more in Christ than just an eight to five job or driving kids to practice or the grades that you're getting in a class or the mistakes that you have made in life or the decisions of where you're going to live or who you're going to marry. Our lives, our purpose is so much bigger and so much greater than those feeble, temporary things. David Benner says that our purpose now Our life is about the advancement of God's plan to displace all kingdoms of this world and replace them with his glorious reign. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, so that we would be enabled and equipped and empowered to do this together as we witness to the world what God's love looks like, as we witness to the world what real unconditional unity looks like, and as we witness to the world this good news that someone has loved us so much so that they want to give to us the thing that will actually be fulfilling and sustaining and eternal. And this is how Paul ends. He casts this vision to the church of Philippi. And he's trying to say, this is the great purpose of each Christian. This is what our lives should be centered around. It's Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Our ultimate purpose is to live a life that speaks truth and loves others in ways where he is revealed, amplified, honored, and glorified. And this is when we'll actually have the unity that is talked about so often in the New Testament. When all of our hidden agendas are cast aside. When all of our opinions about singing and what songs we should be worshiping to. And, and, and what, what books of the Bible we should be going through. And, and what we should be saying every single Sunday morning. When all that is cast aside... And all we care about is preaching, proclaiming, living, and exalting Christ crucified in such a way that people see him. Nothing else eternally matters in comparison to that foundational fundamental truth that he would be glorified. It's not that all these other things in our life are unimportant. God cares about them and there's a tension that we don't have time to get into today. It's not that they're unimportant. It's that Jesus is of the utmost importance. It's that this purpose is more important than legacy. This purpose is more important than money. This purpose is more important than a spouse. This purpose is more important than even things that we prioritize in this life a really good practice and the problem is that so many of us are living for this world 
whether we believe this or not, what we're actually living is oftentimes just for the 85 years. And I get it. There, there's so much, this world seems so present. It seems so loud and large. And it seems like the things that we're going through, the things that we're thinking about, and the thing, things that we're dreaming up are the most important things. How could they not be? A really important practice that someone told me about that I've started to do is ask yourself who your great, great grandfather was. Now, unless you had like George Washington as your ancestor or you've been on ancestry.com, I have no idea who my great, great grandfather is. I don't know his name. Don't know who he was married to. Don't know what he did for a living. Don't know how much money he made. Don't know what he cared about. Don't know even if he was a believer. Why is this important? Because we spend so much time prioritizing things that two generations from now probably aren't going to remember. The one thing that will have an eternal impact is if we are striving to make God known to every single person that we come in contact with. When you get to heaven, God is not going to ask in order for you to get in, well, how much money did you make? How good was your daughter at basketball when she played for UConn? What grades did you get in that ninth grade algebra class? How many books did you read? How much do you actually know about the Bible? Can you break down justification and sanctification and glorification as theological concepts for me? Can you defend in a five-point sermon this concept or this text? Who did you vote for? How much did you work out? I don't know why I threw that one in there, but he's not going to ask that. His questions are going to look a little more like, did you tell people about me? Did you love others in sacrificial and suffering ways that actually cost you something? And then Nathan, do, do you look more like me? Did you look more like me or did you become something else on earth? What really and ultimately and eternally matters is that grand purpose of replacing the kingdoms of this world with his kingdom. I know we've heard sermons like this before, and I cannot stress with each of you that this is not some guilty scare tactic to get you into a group at Hope Fellowship. I promise. Too often, and the likely potential that I have to come to accept of the sermon today and most sermons is that we will just shrug off these truths tomorrow and continue to live in our normal patterns and habitual streams of people because we either still just don't care about this because we haven't experienced the real love of God that motivates to do unthinkable things that we never thought we would or could do or because I think oftentimes it's because we get so overwhelmed at this call of Jesus that we don't even know how to begin and so we just leave it to the people who are getting paid to do this. But the purposes of the kingdom of God, casting out darkness, ushering in light, healing the sick and restoring communities can be done. And we are called and is called to be done by each of us, each of you in the room individually. Mother Teresa simplified the grand vision and we end here, the grand vision of the kingdom of God into this simple idea. She said, I want you to be the good news to those right around you. I want you to be concerned about your next door neighbor. Do you know who your neighbor is? We do not need to carry out grand things in order to show a great love for God and for our neighbors. Listen, it is the intensity of love we put into our gestures that make them into something beautiful for God. 
It's not just dropping off a meal. It's asking if you can share the meal with them and asking them to share stories about the person that they lost or asking them to tell what's been difficult about the first couple of weeks of having a baby. It's not just sending money. It's, it's building deep relationships with the people that you're sending money to so that you can actually identify what their real and tangible and physical needs are. It's doing the hard work of kingdom-minded love that is not cheap, easy, or self-centered. And the best part about this is that loving God and ushering in the kingdom of God isn't done through big churches, programs, or just the pastors. It is done when each of us in the room today decide to live humbly and live for something bigger than ourselves. It happens when we let God actually be God in our life. It happens when we take the time to invest in and get uncomfortable with one person that we are in close proximity with. Uh, My parents' church actually did this practice at the beginning of the year, but I want to offer it up here because I think it's a really beautiful practice that simplifies this kingdom purpose into something that I think each of us, I know each of us can do. And that is on the back of your sheet, there is a blank space for you to prayerfully think of one name, one person that you want to inconvenience yourself with for the rest of this year. One person that you want to be uncomfortable with by getting vulnerable with them and stepping into the messiness of their life. One person that you want to give up control to and say to God, not my will in their life, but your will in my life. Not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come. Not my glory here, but your glory here. And take the time to get to know and disciple that one person. To get take time and to lead that person in love to love so that they would do the same to someone else. In a culture that idolizes comfort, Christians are to choose to be uncomfortable by actually getting to know people beyond an arm's length. In a culture that prioritizes convenience, Christians are to choose to see interruptions as opportunities to witness to and build a longer lasting, more fulfilling kind of love. In a culture that pursues control, Christians are to surrender in such a way we recognize that all 24 hours in our day, the lawful possessor of those 24 hours is God and not ourselves. Would we be a people who are motivated by love to humbly love others, to usher in his kingdom and glorify and amplify his presence and love? Would you pray with me? Father, the fact that you emptied yourself for our sake and for the sake of your kingdom. Would we hold that picture in front of us every morning, every pause we get in our day, any excess amount of time, would that be a reminder to us of how we are to spend our life? with what we are to invest in in life, with who we are supposed to invest in in life. Would your sacrifice and suffering love be felt in this room today for those who have just not experienced that love? Would you soften their hearts in such a way where they can actually accept this foundational truth that you love each of us as we are and that you love us so much that you want to bring us into something bigger than just a love of self. Father, reveal your love to people in this room. 
Father, start rearranging people's priorities. Start disintegrating and crumbling idols in people's life. Would you be our purpose? Would your kingdom be our message? And would we be a people who are unified because we are so fixated on you and nothing else? In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.